Heavenly Father, we thank you that now we can come before your word, indeed a word of life. And we thank you that as we come, you speak to us, you speak to us of many things, calling us out of our idolatries and into life, life even eternal. And we thank you that in your word you give us comfort and you give us assurance, comfort and assurance that indeed you love us and that we can come before you, not only knowing but expecting that you will listen and that you love us. And so we ask that as we come to these final verses of this wonderful letter, which is in your word of God, that you will teach us you will train us, and you will show us that you care for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, from 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 to 21. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the Son, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, then if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray, and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. John is a bit of a literary rebel. Every literature book you would read or every course you would go to, at least in our own times, will teach you that you should put your introduction and your purpose up front that you should tell people on the very first page, perhaps, what it is that you want to communicate and why you are communicating it, and then spend the rest of the time that you are writing trying to accomplish what you said you were going to accomplish. You put your purpose first and then the rest. Well, John does the very opposite. John puts all the rest first, and then at the very end, he includes his purpose. And this is John's way. You know, I, I say that. I don't mean to criticize John. He is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and I certainly am not. Neither are those who write modern literature teaching books. But either way, John, this is how he works. And this is not only how John has worked here in 1 John, but it is how John worked in his gospel, what John wrote in his gospel as well. In both books, both the gospel of John and the first letter of John, John begins with a celebration of Jesus. We see that, we go back to 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and John says this, That which was from the beginning, 
which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. That is quite the celebration. He is eternal life. He is the word of life. He was there in the beginning. And then it's not till the end that John gets to the rest. This is essentially how John works in the Gospel of John as well. You go back to John 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so John says, again, the glory of Christ. And then when he gets to the end of his gospel, he says this in John 20, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So now, too, when we come to the very end of this first letter of John, John tells us why he writes, that you may know that you have eternal life. And I want us just to briefly note a significant difference between the Gospel of John and this first letter of John. The Gospel of John is evangelistic. He wants those who read it to know Christ and to come to Christ. The first letter of John is pastoral. He wants his readers to know that they know Christ. He wants them to have assurance. And this word know is a word that we are going to come across a number of times in these final verses. In fact, we'll come across it seven different times in these number of verses. John wants us to know that we have eternal life. John specifies his audience John's audience is believers. He writes to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. And when John says name, he doesn't just mean that you believe that there was a man named Jesus and there wasn't just a man who named himself the Son of God. When he says name, by that he means the full person, the whole identity of Jesus, the Son of God. Everything that He was, everything that He is, and everything that He ever will be, John says, you believe in that one, and I write to you who believe that, and I write to you because you have eternal life. So John writes to believers, and then by extension, we are also His audience as we believe. And I want to offer a caveat before we go too much further. And that is to say that in our own day, in our own modern spirit of the age, there is something in us, at least in the culture around us, that is allergic to certainty. We have an allergy to anyone who would claim to know truth and to claim it unquestionably. Unless, of course, it's something that agrees with the spirit of the age, in which case, be as confident as you want. But anybody, anybody who would claim to believe a doctrine and to know it is true without question is considered proud or arrogant. But John says the exact opposite. That to have confidence in the promises of God is righteous. And in fact, it is humble 
It is humble because the message of the gospel is humbling for us, that we would need the perfect Son of God to die for us. If something is to be considered pride, I would put forth to you that in fact doubt is prideful. Because doubt says, I'm not sure yet about the promises of God. But humility says, I believe every word that God speaks is true, no matter what it is that he says. I want to move on then into verses 14 and 15. John says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. Again, there's nothing new here. John doesn't make anything up. John just takes the things that he had heard from Jesus and says them again to those who are with him. John had heard from Jesus this very same thing, going back to the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 23. Jesus had said, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Knowledge of God always has effects. If we know the character and the holiness of God, it affects our worship. If we know the commands of God, it affects our desires and our conduct. And if we know the love of God, then it affects our confidence. And since God has loved us, then we have confidence to approach Him. We have confidence to come before Him in prayer. The word and, the word and is an important word in the English language or any other language, the Greek language included. And there's a little Greek word and that connects in the Greek language verses 13 and 14. And the ESV, a shameless plug for the ESV, the ESV translates from verse 13 to verse 14 that you may know that you have eternal life and this is the confidence we have in approaching God. It is because of our eternal life that we have confidence to approach God. And why not? Why wouldn't we? If God has loved us so much that He would give His Son, not just a Son, not just a Son like we are sons or we are daughters, but the Son, if He would give His one and only begotten Son for us, if He would have His Son crucified for our sake, then why would He not listen to our prayers? Such is the depth and the glory of God's love for us that allows us to come with confidence. Simon Kistemacher says, Because of the gift of eternal life, the believer has the confidence, that is, the freedom to approach God in prayer anywhere and anytime. As a child of God, he freely comes to God with his praise and petitions. Freely. Isn't that a great word? We know the God who hung every star in the sky. The God who controls the very smallest of the atoms. The God who created the human cell and every galaxy. We know this God. And we not only know Him, 
but we are loved by Him. We are not only loved by Him, but we are called His children. And we are not only called His children, but we are invited into His presence in prayer. And we are invited to come freely. We come not like Esther before the king. Esther before her own husband. She came to the king and she came hoping that he would not have her stricken down because she came presumptuously. But we come as a child before his good father. We come with respect. We come in humility, but we come with confidence. Confidence in his love and care for us. Of course, prayer is not a blank check. Many folks, I think, in not only our own day, but particularly around the world as well, would put forth prayer as some sort of a blank check. But that's not what Jesus says. That's not what John says. John says, if you ask anything according to his will, and that is that we do not pray for anything and expect to receive it. We expect to receive what we ask for that pleases the Lord. And sometimes the Lord says no. Even sometimes the Lord says no to the holiest of people. You remember when Jesus is on the eve of his suffering, when he knows that it is coming, when he knows that Judas is coming to betray him, and he knows the cross and the forsakenness of God awaits him, he prays, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me and the father says no it is not my will and so it is that sometimes we may come to the lord and he may very well say no but i do not want us to focus on the no's i want us to focus on the yeses because that is what john focuses in our time together when we come to the Lord, we are able to come boldly in expectation that what we come and ask for, we will receive. Do we pray for wisdom? James says, pray with it and pray for it, knowing that you will receive it and expect to receive it. Do we pray for the strength to fight off sin? Then expect to be strengthened. Do we pray for stronger faith? then expect to believe more firmly. When we come to God and ask for good things, then we should expect that we will receive it. Not because of the strength of our petitions, not because we have long, flowery prayers that make God love us more, but we come simply because we are His children. And we know that He loves us. And so we expect Him to love us in that way. In all of this, as with the previous verse, we are able to know. We know that He hears us. Now, we might not always receive what we ask for in the way that we would like to receive it. Sometimes the Lord answers our prayers in different ways than we would hope for. In this sense, sometimes I pray with kind of one eye open, thinking, how are the ways the Lord could answer this prayer that I might not particularly enjoy? And sometimes the Lord gives us what we ask for in a very different way than we expected to receive it. But even so, the Lord answers our prayer, and we can know that. I want to move into verses 16 and 17 as John makes application of what he has just said. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray. 
and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. John makes application of his teaching on prayer, I think, in a surprising way, and it's surprising for two reasons. First, he applies it not to prayers for ourselves. And secondly, he, he refers to it and he applies it in prayers not for tangible things, not for things that we can touch or taste or smell. But he applies it to prayer for others and to prayer for spiritual things. Now, that does not mean that it is wrong or we may not pray for physical things or tangible things for ourselves. This is the Word. This is the disciple of Jesus who taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But here he speaks to prayer for others and prayer for spiritual things, encouraging us not only to be mindful of ourselves in our prayers, and he calls us here to pray for those who sin. Now we'll get into the sin that leads to death in just a moment. If you were to read this passage, I suspect the the big question in your mind would be, what is this and have I committed it? And we'll get there in just a moment, but I want us to focus first Again, on what John tells us to pray for. If you see a brother who sins, pray and he will be given life. John tells us to pray for brothers. That is, that for fellow people who have been born of God. He tells us to pray for Christians. That we should pray for one another. We rightly pray for the gospel to go to all the world. We rightly pray for missionaries who will bring the gospel to new people. We rightly pray for ourselves as we evangelize other people. Those are right prayers. But if we do those things and we neglect praying for people in here, then we have not prayed to the extent that God desires for us to pray. We are to pray for each other, for provision, for whatever it is that we lack, and we are to pray for one another when they sin. And we ask that God will forgive at least part of the proper way of dealing with sin inside the church is prayer. John, though, is not saying that sin does not lead to death. We know that it's true. The wages of sin is death. We see this in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. We see this in Paul's writings as well. He's not meaning to say that that formula is not true. What he's addressing is sin within the church. He's addressing sin among those who already confess Christ, who've already been justified and had their sins forgiven, and now they stumble into sin once more. And we are to pray that this brother... Or this sister comes out of that, back into the life, back into the light to which they have been called to live. But I want us to look at the certainty here of what John says. He says, God will give him life. Not might, not could, not likely. He says, will give him life. There is such a great confidence and assurance in this. 
John is so confident in the effectiveness of our prayers and in God's desire to answer them that in in his writing he says that God will forgive them, God will give them life. He ties together the idea of prayer and God's answer so tightly that it is almost as if our prayers itself affect the forgiveness of God towards others within the church. This is how confident John desires for us to be in prayer. But then, John tells us that we, he's not saying that we should pray for those who've committed the sin that leads to death. Now this raises this big question, what is the sin that leads to death? And there have been a number of answers which have been offered over the years. Some have said these are the sins that listed in the Old Testament that merited the death penalty. Sins like murder or adultery or things like that. But given the full scope of the Scriptures and the forgiveness offered even to those types of sinners, it doesn't seem that that would be a fair interpretation. Perhaps a, a better understanding, nearer to the truth, would be from the life of Jesus. Jesus ministered in power. He ministered with miracles. He could even raise the dead. But the Pharisees, knowing that Jesus had done these things, they couldn't deny that He'd fed the people with miracle bread. They couldn't deny that He had walked on the water. They couldn't deny that blind saw and lame walked. They couldn't deny that, so instead they slandered Him. And they said that He was not doing these miraculous signs in the power of God, but He was filled with demons and used their power. Sort of like the magicians of Pharaoh back before the Exodus. Jesus says, you may blaspheme the Son of Man, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will be condemned. The issue with this interpretation is that it can only be part of the story because John hasn't referred to this at all the rest of his letter. So while I think that answer is on the right track, I think there's a better, fuller answer involved here. And it is the sin which John's opponents had committed. John's opponents once had been in the church. Once they had professed a love for Christ. Once they had said that they loved John. And now they have not only left John and left the church and left the real Jesus, but now they have begun to slander the real Jesus, slander the real God, slander John, and accuse the Christians who have remained faithful to John of not really being Christians. And so they have not only left, they have not only grown to have doubt, but they have grown to be mortal enemies of Christ. And John says, this is the sin that leads to death. Now, notice that John does not say that you should not pray for them. He's just saying that I am not saying you should pray for them. He's not forbidding us necessarily to pray. He's just saying that's not my point. My point is that you pray for people in here. And God will hear and God will answer. Now the, the writer of the Hebrews says this, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm 
and holding him up to contempt. It's exactly what John's enemies were doing. They're crucifying the Son of God again, making him to be a shameful object of scorn instead of a beautiful object of desire and worship. John does not say pray for them. He says pray for yourselves. And we see this, John circles back now to verses 18 and 20, and he comes back to all the main themes of the whole letter as he draws very near to the close. He says, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true and eternal God and eternal life. Another thing that they know is that those who belong to God, those who have been born of God, do not continue to sin. Now again, we don't mean by this that they never sin. We simply mean that they do not walk with sin. Those who are born of God do not hold sin's hand and go on romantic evenings together. There is an enmity between the believer and sin. We do sin. We do sin. John says back in chapter 1 that we, we deceive ourselves if we say we have not, no, no sin. We are liars. But he says as well that those who are born of God do not live in sin. You go back to chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. There John said, This is the message we have heard from him or proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. We walk in the light. John Stott, I think, had a very helpful couple of sentences about this. He said, Sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet. They cannot live together in harmony. I want you to see the assurance, though, that John offers to his people. He says, And the evil one cannot harm him. This goes back to the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, deliver us from evil. But a fuller translation of that might be deliver us from the evil one. And here John says that evil one can't touch you. He may put things in your path that make you stumble. He may put temptations in your life, but he cannot overcome you. He may be strong, but he is nowhere near as strong as God, and he is nowhere near as strong as Christ. And if you are born of God, and if you are a brother of Christ, then Christ will protect you. And if he protects you, as we say, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Jude, that short little letter, doesn't even have chapters, just has verses. 
Jude has some of these amazing words at the end. It's, we use it as a benediction oftentimes, but it's not really a benediction. It's a doxology. Benedictions are blessings for people. Doxologies are blessings of God. But it's so wonderful that really we, we almost can't help ourselves but use it as a benediction. And going back to Jude, verse 24, we read this wonderful thing about God. To Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. To Him who is able to keep you from falling. Isn't that what the evil one wants? He wants you to fall. He wants you to fall flat on your face. He wants you to fall into the darkness. He does not want you to be kept. He wants you to be consumed by the darkness. But John says, and Jude says, that we have one who is able to keep us from falling. And not only keep us from falling, but we have one who is able to present us without fault and with great joy to himself. Now just imagine, this is a terrible imagination, but just imagine that you exist in and of yourself with no Christ. And you are going to stand before the holiness of God by yourself. And you are going to have to stand there and He's going to ask you a question. Why should I give you life? And your answer, if you are honest, is I don't know You shouldn't. But here, we have a God who is able to present us before himself with great joy. Who is able to present us before himself without fault. This is the God and this is the Christ that John speaks of. That he is able to keep us from the evil one. That we are to be guarded And we are to be kept in the state of eternal life. So John goes on to note then two things that we know. We know that we are children of God. This has been the main point of the whole letter. He wants these people to know that they are children of God. They had had doubt cast upon them. People were saying they weren't children of God. And now John wants them to know, yes, you, ha- you are children of God. And so he has given them three tests by which to test whether someone is a child of God. He gave them the test of morality. Do they walk in the light? He gave them the social test. Do they love? And thirdly, he gave them the doctrinal test. Do they believe that Jesus is the Son of God? This is sort of like a pass-fail test. As a somewhat slacker high school student, I particularly liked the pass-fail test because I could do the minimum and my work was graded the same as as the guy who did the maximum. I can imagine the valedictorian didn't like the pass-fail test for the inverse reason that I did like it. But here we have pass-fail tests. Do you walk in the light? Not perfectly, not 100%, but do you walk in the light? Do you love? Not perfectly, but generally, do you love? And do you believe that Jesus has come and is the Son of God? If the answers are yes, then you passed. 
And John says, those others, they did not pass, but they failed. But you, you have passed. And therefore, you can know, you can know that you are born of God. Sometimes we need assurance. We need to be comforted. And this is why John writes, he spends five chapters to make one point. This, it, well, this is what it means to be a Christian. And you are one. You know, one frequent fright for young children is the nightmare. The nightmare, if you have children or if you were a child, you're familiar with the concept of a nightmare. You have a dream. It's particularly terrifying. You wake up, and as a child, you're not sure whether it was real or not. And so in that state of of half asleep and half awake confusion, you wake up crying or perhaps screaming, and you gather yourself together, and you go to mom and dad's room, and mom and or dad wakes up and grabs you and says, it's okay. It wasn't real. It was just a dream. You're going to be fine. And so that's how it is here. John, their father in the faith, takes them in and says, everything is okay. You belong to God. You are his child. So John finishes then in verse 21, finishes this letter not with some kind of flowery wording, not even with, and I love you, just with a simple command in verse 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Dear children. It's this term of endearment again. He wants to give them a fatherly comfort. And then he gives them an instruction. Keep yourselves from idols. Now there are all kinds of idols There have been all kinds of idols for as long as there has been sin. But the idol that John has in mind here is the idol of the fake God and the fake Jesus. These fake Christians were trying to seduce the real Christians into worshiping the fake God and the fake Jesus. And they had made an idol, not out of gold or silver. They had made an idol in their minds and in their hearts. And they wanted the faithful to become unfaithful and to go after the corruption. John warns against the kind of idolatry that we recited earlier from the Heidelberg Catechism. This was question 95. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in the Word. They had invented a fake God. They had invented a fake Jesus. You know, there are fake Jesuses all over the place and all around us. There is the fake Jesus of the spirit of the age. He was a guy who lived in history. He was significant, but that's about it. There is a Jesus of Islam. The Jesus who was a prophet, even a great prophet, but nothing more. There is the prophet, or there is the the fake Jesus of Judaism. He was perhaps a reformer, perhaps even well intentioned, but that was it. 
There's the fake Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons who is a creature and he is not God. There is as well the fake Jesus of the Catholic Church who isn't enough who has to be sacrificed again and again and again, and who needs help to save us. And then there is the nice, kind, soft Jesus of the modern quasi-religious person who was a nice guy and a nice teacher, but that's as far as it goes. But those aren't the real Jesuses. The real Jesus is the Son of God, The real Jesus has come. The real Jesus is not a God masquerading as a man, nor is He a man masquerading as God. He is God and He is man fully at the same time without any confusion or compromise. The real Jesus is God. The real Jesus is worthy of worship. The real Jesus really shed real blood. The real Jesus is really good enough, great enough, strong enough, wonderful enough, gracious enough to save whoever He wants. That's not their Jesus, but that's our Jesus. And so we should love and believe and trust only in John's Jesus, who is ours. Let's pray. God, in your word, you tell us to keep ourselves, to guard ourselves against idolatry, against idols, whether they be things fashioned with our hands or things fashioned merely with our minds. But now let us fall. Do not let us fall into these kinds of idolatry. For though some are gold and some are in the mind, all lead to death. And so spare us from that death. May it be that none of us here today even Even those of us who are watching, may it be that none of us will be like those from John's church who once professed the faith and then left and became enemies of the gospel. But instead, may it be, Heavenly Father, that we would to a person be your child. That we would be loved by you. That we would be able to come in confidence before you knowing that we have what we ask. So as we have come through, Father, as we have come through this this whole letter, inspired by Your Spirit, bearing witness to Your Son, may it be that You would instill these truths. We know that as we go across months and years that many of the things we have heard will slip out of our minds, but keep us true to the core that there is one Jesus and that we need to belong to Him. And that indeed, by Your grace, we do. So bless us as we leave from this place, as we come away from this time in Your Word. Bless us with this assurance. We ask in that great confidence. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.